Good morning, Freedom Church. Chris has just asked if I would read our passage for us today before he makes a start and brings us a word. So if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you just turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and I'm reading from the ESV version. It says this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Well, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Hi, Freedom Church, uh, and welcome. I am so excited this morning to be preaching from our new preaching series on King David and the lessons we can learn from his life. Do you know, he's an absolute giant in the story of Israel. And there is so much written about him in our Bibles. In fact, there's more being written about King David than any other character in the Old Testament. There are actually 66 chapters written about David in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, there are 59 references to this great king. He plays such a significant role in the story of Israel. And we not only get to read about his life in 1 and 2 Samuel, which we're studying, you can read about him in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, but we also get to glean insights into what he thought and felt by reading many of the Psalms that he wrote. In fact, there are 73 Psalms that are attributed to King David. As I said, we're studying 1 and 2 Samuel, but we start in chapter 16. That's where we're introduced to David. And 1 and 2 Samuel span quite a long period. It's about 150 years. And so to understand where we are in chapter 16, I just want to give you a little overview of what's happened between chapters 1 and chapter 16. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to Hannah. And um, she is a lady who uh, is barren and she's crying out to the Lord for, for him to give her a son through her husband. And after much prayer and much difficulty and a lot of asking God, we read. 
says this. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now in Jewish culture, names always carried great significance. And so you'd expect this name, Samuel, to mean because I asked the Lord. But actually, that's not what his name means. Samuel actually means the name of God. And Shaul is actually the Hebrew term for to ask for. So this is the first strange thing to take note of. Second strange thing to take note of, uh, she ends up giving her son to God to be a priest in his temple. And she prays this prayer in chapter two. And she ends this prayer by saying these two lines. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this is another strange thing to pray because at this point in the history of Israel, there is no king. He's absolutely non-existent. But as we fast forward to chapter six, we see that at this point, her son Samuel has been anointed to lead God's people. He is a prophet and a judge in the house of God. And, but the nation of Israel are not happy with this. They decide they want a king. So they go to Samuel and they demand, they ask for a king. Samuel actually warns against this idea. But as he seeks God on their demand, God actually tells Samuel to give the people what they ask for. It's Shaal, what they ask for. And we're introduced to Saul. They choose this king, Saul, which actually means to ask for. So just to say the idea of a king is not a foreign concept for this nation of Israel. We see it in Genesis 49 in Deuteronomy uh, 17. And these are messages that point towards a king ruling. But these passages give the people uh, of Israel some guidance around the appointment of such a king. So, for instance, uh, these passages of Deuteronomy 17 would suggest that it's actually God who would choose the king. And... Um, it talks about this person being a person who's not only interested in amassing a great army for their fame, shouldn't be out of selfish ambition. They shouldn't be a lover of money, amassing great wealth. And so anyway, the people get to ask and they get what they ask for. They ask for a king and they ask for Saul. And so by chapter 15, here we are, Saul is reigning and he's not doing a great job, to be honest. And in chapter 15, God asks him to go and fight a battle against the Amalekites. And he tells them, he says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. He tells them to destroy everything, including the cattle and the sheep. But what we find is that Saul totally disobeys God's command. He actually keeps anything of value from this battle that's gonna increase his wealth. And to top it off, he actually goes off to a Mount, Mount Carmel and he builds an altar. But this altar wasn't an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, to praise him for his wonderful victory. This altar that Saul builds is an altar to himself. And Saul's reign is really a lesson of what not to do, of how not to lead God's people. And so what happens is Samuel approaches Saul and tells him he regrets ever making him king. And so does God. And he tells them that because of his constant disobedience, 
the Lord has rejected him and the kingdom will be torn away from him. And this time the Lord will choose the next king and Samuel will anoint him. And so here we are at this famous story of this young shepherd boy being anointed to become king. And it's a great passage. There's loads I could look at in this chapter, but I want to focus just really mainly on one main verse. And it's chapter 16 and it's verse 7. And it says... But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the hearts. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the hearts. I don't know if you've heard of a lady called Lisa Lai. I read her story actually in the BBC News. Uh, it was about a year ago, and she is a Chinese social influencer, a famous blogger who has over 1.1 million followers. And in this article, we're told that she is known for her glamorous looks, her expensive tastes, her glossy vacations, her fine dining experiences. And there's lots of people following her to see all of these dramatic experiences. However, a video tour of her flat filmed by her landlady exposes the filth and neglect hidden behind her carefully curated online persona. The flat was littered with moldy food, unwashed dishes, dog excrements, and um, a filthy cage. And the landlady said the flat was so dirty that even professional cleaners had refused to clean it. Do you know, we live in a world today that is obsessed with the outward appearance, don't we? There is a desire for all of us to want to hide the mess inside our lives, away from the public eye. And we want to portray a picture, just like Lisa Lai did, that we have an amazing life, that we have it all together. And we live in this celebrity culture that wants to celebrate the gifts that people have. And so we watch things like X Factor, seeing those with amazing singing gifts. We watch the Bake Off as we watch people's baking abilities. I find myself at times watching these crazy YouTube videos of crazy stunts that people do on bikes or jet skis or parkour. And honestly, we're impressed by it. We follow it. That's why Lisa Lai had over a million followers wanting to see what life looked like for her. But this truth that we read about God in verse seven, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I wanna say this is scary, man. This is real. And you know, we have a chance here this morning to learn some amazing lessons from this story. Lisa Lai was bankrupt. She was in major debt and all of her online persona was a lie. What was inside was dirty, it was smelly, it was rotten. And by the end of his life, this is Saul, we get to see the exact same thing. We get to see that inside Saul's heart, it was rotten. He had chased after all of the wrong things in life. And today I want us to examine our hearts 
And I want us to understand how is it then that we cultivate a heart after God? So first, I want to say none of us are immune to this disease. Okay, we we live in this culture. We're surrounded by it where there's constant external comparisons. We actually want what others have, don't we? And in fact, this is where the nation of Israel started out. They looked around and they looked at other kingdoms and all these other kingdoms had king rulers, visible king rulers. And they wanted what looked good. They wanted someone representing them that was visibly powerful, attractive, assertive. And so we find out that they chose Saul. And 1 Samuel 9 verse 2 says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So from the external experience that we read about Saul, he was it. He had the looks, the charm, the stature, the power, the prowess. He was impressive. And honestly, throughout this story, we see not just the nation of Israel struggling with value and external things, but almost everybody in this story shows themselves to do the exact same thing. Now, as Samuel enters this town of Bethlehem, do you know what? The people we find out are worried. They're worried that Samuel might be coming with some sort of judgment from God. But Samuel actually asks Jesse to gather his sons together for what I think was going to be the most important lineup this family was ever going to witness. One of them, one of his sons is going to be chosen and anointed to be the next king. And we actually see Samuel, the prophet, the judge, God's very mouthpiece, the one who knows God and hears God. And he stops at Jesse's first son. And we read. When they arrived. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. The great Samuel, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God makes the same mistake. He's looking at the outward appearance and he thinks, man, this has got to be the next king. He's got the look. His stature is kingly, whatever that means. And, you know, there seems to be something inherent, I think, in all of us that's inbuilt with judging people from external things. And here we have the prophet making the exact same mistakes. And I just want to acknowledge and admit, you know, this happens in the church. We struggle with the same things. We get caught out looking at gifting and often make it the most important thing when choosing leaders. We too become impressed by others' abilities. And you know, what I'm not saying is that uh, external things, gifts are not important at all. They are important. But what is paramount is character. And you know, this premise, this truth that God is more interested in the heart is worked out throughout the whole of Scripture. And so when we turn to the New Testament And we see them choosing leaders. We see these qualifications for elders and leaders in the church from Timothy and Titus. We see that there's these qualifications. There's 16 qualifications. 
but 14 out of 16 of these qualification are all focused on the character of the leader. It's actually things like being self-controlled, not giving to drunkenness, marital faithfulness, handling money and temper and authority correctly. And it's only the last two of these 16 things that are based on gifting to do with the ability to teach. But you know, God is looking for character over gifting. He's looking first for those whose heart is soft to him and malleable. Those who are gonna express a love for him and a joy for him and allow him to mold them. We have so many examples in our culture, in our world today. Sporting giants like Tiger Woods, who really were the very best in the world in their gifts. You know, he was the world's best golfer, only to see that in his private life, their integrity is absolutely flawed. What I'm not trying to do, by the way, is suggest that somehow we are better. David, we're gonna see from his life, some of you will know, he is totally flawed in his life and some of the decisions that we that he made. And if we're honest and we look at our own lives, we have to recognize that we too are flawed. But I wanna suggest that as Christians, we're directed to live another way, a way that actually isn't all about self-interest or greed. I wanna tell you a story about a man uh, who I was told about who um, was working for a firm and his boss pulled him into the office and he sat him down and he said, in no uncertain terms, listen, I need you to lie for us, to get this big deal over the line that's just about to happen, but they're gonna ask you this question and I need you to say this. But you know, this guy was a Christian and had he, had he been solely focused on career development, then I guess this would have been a no brainer. This big deal getting over the line is gonna mean promotion, it's gonna mean money, but he was a Jesus follower. And he took seriously the point that God looks at the heart. And he said something I just look at and think is amazing to his boss. He says, I just can't lie for you. Because if I do, I wanna suggest it won't be long before I start lying to you. I can't lie for you because it won't be long before I start lying to you. He understood that if we start making little compromises here and there, it will get worse. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything that you do flows from it. It's no surprise to me that when I see how often the Bible tells us to protect our heart and we see our physical form that God's created, we see the significance of the heart. The heart is literally caged deep inside our bodies. It's protected and it's this vital organ that affects the entire body. And guarding it from harm is essentially not just physically vital, but spiritually vital, okay? Finally, in this story, we see it's not just Israel and Samuel who looked at the outward things, but we actually see Jesse, who was David's father, who had chosen to line up his sons, knowing that one was gonna be king. And it was only as Samuel gets to the end of this queue and he's not anointed any of the seven sons so far, that he has to ask Jesse, is there any more? You know, this is astonishing. He actually says, yes, there's David, he's in the fields. 
even David's own father, Jesse, doesn't consider his youngest son, David, of significance enough to become the king, to have been chosen. Can you imagine how that must have felt for David? The great prophet has come to choose a king from amongst your family and you have been overlooked. Do you know, in that culture, shepherds would have been considered the lowest of the low. Their value was simply non-existent. And because he was out in the field, because he was being faithful to God and these sheep, he was totally overlooked. Because he wasn't as impressive externally as his brothers. But I want to suggest that David knew that to lead others, to be a king, he needed to be able to lead himself well. And as we look at this story, I want to suggest that I think David was more of a king sitting in that field looking after sheep than maybe Saul ever was while sitting on the throne with huge armies around him. I love this quote by Chuck Swindle. It says this. Men and women of God, servant leaders in the making, are first unknown, unseen, unappreciated and unapplauded. In the relentless demands of obscurity, character is built. Strange as it may seem, those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. There was this obscurity for David, but you know, in the field, in the obscurity, his character was built. It was in the small things. He was faithful in the small that meant God could trust him in the big. In the obscurity of these mountains, looking after sheep, protecting them from the wolves or the bears, feeding them. It was there that God trained him to be an overseer of his sheep, of his people. Now, finally, at the very end of this passage, we read. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. From the time of being anointed by oil by the prophet Samuel to the time that he became king was actually 15 years. And in that 15 years, David learned to guard his heart. He was growing more and more into the kind of king that God was establishing. And this wasn't through trying harder and harder to become a king. But it's by what John 15 says. It's this remaining and abiding in the vine by staying close to God, by feeding himself on scripture and allowing God through the power of the spirit to bear fruit in his life. It's bearing this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now, David, we're going to learn, was not perfect. He made many mistakes but he was a man after God's own heart because he was quick to repent he was quick to acknowledge God 
He was open to correction and rebuke. He was a man who was growing in the fruit of the Spirit. He was a man who loved others, who put others first, who chose to lay down all of that wealth for himself. And if we live, I want to suggest that if we live by the idea that the most important thing that we look for are those most gifted, then naturally we're going to be chasing those that we see are most successful in the world's eyes. Those with the most followers on Instagram, the most eloquent speakers, the most academic thinkers, even the most theologically correct. But the danger I want to suggest that we face in this scenario, if that's what we value, is we put and we place all of our hope in those who promise much, but deliver very little, like Saul did. We also shape our own lives around the pursuit of becoming like the things that we value. And so we end up working as hard as we can to get the recognition that we so eagerly desire of a successful life. And the third danger is we end up overlooking and undervaluing the things that are of true value in this world and the one to come. And just as David must have felt hurt by his father's actions, we too, however unintentionally that is, will end up hurting others, those who we've undervalued, those who actually allow in the spirit to bear fruit within them. I don't know how you're feeling today after hearing this, but I want to speak to you firstly, if you're a Christian and maybe you feel like Lucy Lai. Your attention has been on the outward appearance in your life. And you feel like maybe you've been running after all these external things that make you appear to be something or someone that is attractive or successful. But you know, on the inside, you recognize the squalor, the dirtiness, the destruction, the lie, and you're tired, man. You're weary from trying and trying. Titus 3 verse 5 says this. It says, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It can feel exposing, can't it, to have our hearts opened up. But I want to encourage you that as I want to encourage you that the great physician has already done heart surgery on you. And he's actually given us a heart that responds to the prompting of his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come to condemn and tell you how terrible you've been. But he comes and he convicts, he empowers, he transforms and he changes us if we abide, if we draw near if we obey. And he says this, he says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He is more committed to you than you are to your very self. Now, undoubtedly, I want to say for all of us, I would expect there are areas of our heart this morning that God has just been pointing out. He's been convicting us and these are areas that require action. And so I want to encourage you not just to ignore what he's saying, not to harden your heart to it, not to think I'll get to this later, but I want to encourage you to work with him 
his Holy Spirit living in you, changing you and transforming you. Bring in that conviction. Respond to him. For others of you, you might be sitting there and you might be feeling the rawness of being overlooked, undervalued. You may feel that your stance has cost you in the workplace or in your marriage or in relationships. And I want to encourage you that if you're feeling this way, God sees you. He sees your heart. He sees the secret place, the prayers and the diligence. And I want to suggest he has amazing things in store for you. I believe in this life and in the next. And I just want to point you to the great rewards that we look forward to. The beauty of knowing him and being known. Don't get distracted by the trappings of the external, but continue to stand firm and know his absolute love and value that God has for you. He values you. He will not overlook you. He values you so much that he laid down his very life for you because he's the good shepherd. And finally, if you don't know God this morning, and you've been listening to this and you recognize that in your life you've been chasing after things or trying to build things into your life that simply are futile. I want to suggest that God knows. He sees your heart and actually he wants to give you a security and a purpose in your life that you have not known. And he doesn't want you to stay in this place this place of a hard heart, this place of a rotten heart that feels stuck maybe or helpless to change in and of yourself. He wants you to come to him as you are and allow him to be the Lord of your new life. He actually wants to be the center of your attention, the receiver of your affection. And he wants to simply transform your heart and your mind so that you know him and become like him. I hope this blesses you this morning. Have a great week and we will see you next week.